Hello, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This is uh, this is an exciting episode. Today, I am talking to the legendary Stephen Heller. He probably needs no introduction, but just in case, he is the author or co-author of nearly 100 books about graphic design and visual culture. He has written for Print, I, The Atlantic, New York Times. He's this incredible historian of design, uh, publishing monographs on people like Paul Rand and Alvin Lustig. And then in addition to that, he is the chair of SVA's Design as Author Department, where he's taught for over 25 years and helped start SVA's design criticism and interaction design programs. Uh, obviously, Stephen's work has been influential to my own design education, and if you're going to have a conversation about design writing or design criticism, he obviously needs to be a part of that conversation. And I think the design community is forever indebted to his work in those fields. I, uh, I visited him in his office at SVA back in July, where we talked about his own work, design discourse and history, and the craft of writing about design. It was truly an honor to get to spend time with him and pick his brain a little bit. He was so generous and thoughtful with his time. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with the great Stephen Heller. start with you know a little bit of just kind of what your background is and how you kind of got to this career that you've had because it is kind of a unique just okay it it, it is kind of a unique career and and there's maybe a handful of people who kind of have had your career and so how does how does something like that kind of start First of all, I don't know whether it's a career or not. Uh, you know, careers are usually something that you somehow plan for by going to school, studying, and you follow a track. Uh, my track was I went to different high schools, finally went to a progressive school, in quotes, where I could pretty much be freer than the prep schools and military right. schools I went yeah. to. And then the next step was college, which every middle-class kid who lived in this neighborhood and I was born around the corner oh wow, uh, did. You went to college. And I applied to a few that were similar to my high school, like uh, Goddard. Okay. And for some reason, I didn't get in. It was bizarre, because I was totally suited for it. <laughs> but I did get into NYU. Okay. Um, and I took English. And while I was at NYU, or that shortly before I entered, I started working in underground newspapers. And that became something of a passion when you're a kid. Yeah. And I was 17 or so. Uh, I got caught up in that passion, and I won't go into detail about what went on, but uh, the underground paper I worked for morphed into a sex paper. Okay, I think I've heard parts of this okay. story, yeah. So then, 
that morphed into me going to NYU in the in the uh, yeah. fall semester, and after a few semesters, somebody there caught on that I was working for sex paper, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I did a comic strip, and the comic strip was about my philosophy professor. Oh no! At least I used his name, <laughs> and uh, you didn't even change the name. You just no, I used the name. It's a, it wasn't an uncommon name. Okay. Okay. But it was his name. And uh, it was a stupid cartoon comic strip. And they called me in to uh, meet with their psychological expert. Oh, no. Push came to shove. I was asked to leave. So I left. But I didn't care because I was working every day oh, right. doing magazines. And I was writing also. I mean, it wasn't... I was learning what design was, yeah, or at least what art direction was. I was right. learning how to use cartoons and illustrations, but I was writing funny yeah. little things. Okay. And that kind of transitioned into finding the next step is going to art school. I was out of right liberal arts. I still had to stay out of school because of the Vietnam draft. And I ended up uh, getting into Pratt, okay. which I did not want to do. And I ended up getting into School of Visual Arts. Why, why did you not want to get into Pratt? It's too far in Brooklyn. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So you, even, even at like kind of a young, kind of fundamental age, you were, quote, designing and writing. Like, I was always uh, writing. I was always drawing. Okay. I wouldn't call anything I did designing. In fact, I asked my father once what a mechanical was because I was looking in the paper and one ads. Uh, yeah. They said mechanical and layout. And oh, yeah. What did that mean? My father didn't know. Interesting. And there was no Google to look up. Right. So I didn't know what a mechanical was until I started working at this uh, Upper West Side underground newspaper. Oh, that's interesting. So how... How do you go from kind of underground newspaper, kind of cartoon, kind of comic side, sex paper, to writing, uh, you know, I'll just call it like a design history book or books that are about, is that something that kind of happens slowly? Well, it just or, happens. Yeah. You know, it's like you're, if you were able to really chart out your life, You'd probably be living in the Midwest somewhere, yeah. and you'd be attached to a factory, and your father would have gone to that factory, and your grandfather. And that stuff doesn't happen in the United States anymore. Right, yeah. I, th things just happened, and if you're interested in them, you follow up. If you have ambition, you follow up with a little more energy, right. and you find ways of f pushing yourself into the space that you need to fill to be, to fulfill that ambition. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to be someone important in a yeah. publishing context. Okay. Uh, I didn't know what. Right. Uh, I had a lot of cartoonists that I admired, and all cartoonists are writers. Yeah. And all illustrators, whether they know it or not, write, except they're using a visual language. Right. So do you see, do you see, this is kind of, we're going to kind of like turn the conversation a little bit. Do you see 
I, I've been thinking a lot about the actual kind of process of design as being a critical activity. Uh, and through kind of transmission of messages and uh, kind of elaborating on messages visually, that the by the designer kind of putting their point of view on it uh, is a form of criticism. It can be, but it's like there's decorative design and there's yeah. conceptual design. Right. And, you know, the D word is decorative and design. Yeah. And in the olden days, uh, you know, when, if you were a designer, you were a decorator. Right. Uh, it's like the term graphic design wasn't used all that much. It was graphic arts or it was commercial art or something other. Yeah. Even the first time I spoke to Paul Rand before we ever met, he said, I'm a commercial artist. Oh, interesting. And, you know, it, terminology can just be semantic or it could mean something much more. Uh, I felt that by doing the papers I was doing, that I was learning how to put content on a page and make it so that somebody could read it reasonably, logically, legibly. Right. But I also felt, as I got more comfortable with the materials, that I could say something. And we did some papers uh, that were very satiric. And, and the sex paper I did was a satiric paper. Okay. It, was, it was meant to be prurient, but it was also meant to be a stab at current mores yeah. and morals. And, you know, our greatest joy was getting arrested. <laughs> right. was, yeah. So there were critical statements being made. But the critical th writing that I did back then was in the cartoons right? Okay. and uh, in little crazy spot ads that I would do. Okay. Uh, I remember doing something for a bail bondsman for a magazine I did called Mobster Times. And Mobster Times was not about the Italian mob, although it was to an extent. Uh, in fact, it was even printed by them. But it was about politicians. It was about uh, J. Edgar Hoover. It was about... Yeah. So, you know, this was all wrapped into one thing. It wasn't right. about, I was a designer and I was separate from right. the content. Yeah. I was a designer who was contributing to the content. Yeah. And if I wasn't contributing as an editor per se of words, I was contributing as an editor of imagery and words that came together. Right. How... Did you always have an interest in kind of the thing that I think that I like about a lot of your writing and and even kind of hearing you talk about the, the these newspapers is I feel like you often write about design through the kind of larger context of culture and how it affects culture and politics and kind of all of those things and, and putting it into a historical context um, did you always kind of have an interest in history, uh, kind of pop culture, and how this kind of little sliver that you were working on was... Yeah, I was always kind of conscious of it. I wanted to be a historian. Oh, okay. My, my uncle, who sadly is in the hospital right now at 94, oh, wow. um, he was a, an American historian. He worked with Richard Hofstetter, who was oh, the okay. great American historian, yeah. and he wrote a book on academic freedom. And he was really a pivotal person in my life in 
making it so that my parents could understand that I didn't have to go to college. Oh, yeah. Making them understand that it was okay that I had very long hair and that I did cartoons. <laughs> right. You know, they were probably apt to be convinced that way anyway, but he was the guiding force. Yeah. And he was an American historian, specifically uh, in areas that used history as a foundation but went beyond, like academic right, history right. Uh, or academic freedom. Uh, but, you know, we would talk about the New Deal, we would talk about FDR, we would talk okay. about the NRA, we would talk about things that ultimately I realized had graphic components. And right. so while I couldn't be the historian he was, or I'm reading a biography of Bobby Kennedy right now, which okay. I'm thoroughly enjoying because the writer is so good at weaving so many things together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's the kind of historian I wanted to be. Okay. Which meant I had to invent it because I wasn't going to go back to school. Right. And I wasn't even sure I could write, really. And I'm still <laughs> yeah. not sure, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I need editors. Yeah. Uh, if I hand in draft two of anything, it's a piece of crap. And usually I send in two more drafts afterwards and people get sick of that. Uh, or... You know, there are some pieces when I write for Wired, let's say, I had a very heavy-handed editor. Yeah. Great editor, but heavy. And he would just make everything better. Right. Which made me feel like I was making everything bad. Oh, yeah. So. Uh, Interesting. You know, and I love editors because they do save your butts on many occasions. Yeah. But that historical context was always what I felt I could contribute yeah, I couldn't. I wasn't a great designer. I was a fairly good art director, but it meant that I had to pick the right people. Right, and then basically, I could guide them in little directions, or I could find somebody who hadn't been published before. I mean, there were certain yeah. stars that I had in my bonnet, but there were other things like designing, pacing a magazine that just wasn't something right. I could do instinctively. Yeah. So, um, this might, might be kind of a weird question, but you mentioned like writing for Wired, and, and I was actually thinking about this when I was on my way over here to talk to you, is you've written for Wired, The Times, The Atlantic, for like print magazine, your own books. Do you have audiences in mind when you're writing each of these things? Like I imagine some... I. Correct me if I'm like projecting something incorrect, but I'm thinking uh, like your book about Paul Rand has a, probably a different audience than a piece you might write, you know, when you had a column for the Times or for the. Well, Atlantic. when I wrote for the Times, I'd write for Times readers, and I'd write about something that they probably didn't understand all that much. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of. And when I wrote obituaries for the Times, uh, my purpose was to get people who didn't know that there were people who did this stuff and right. had impact culturally on one of those people on the map. Right. And so, yeah, there's, there are different audiences, but there are also different editors. And those okay. editors will help, you know, if I put in too much jargon, if I say some the uh -oh. word mode or paradigm, right. they'll take it out. Okay. Uh, if, and then you learn to not to use certain yeah. words. Uh, there's also points at which 
I throw in words that are not jargonistic in, in a theoretical sense or a, a semiotic sense, you know, or an academic sense, but I'll throw in words that substitute for something I can't figure out. Oh, yeah. And right. a good editor will find those. Okay. And find the right words. Or I'll do three or four drafts and figure out where that word is right. supposed to be. So so if you're, if you're writing, let's say, an obituary... Um, how many drafts do you go through on something like that? Well, I imagine that's is like a very a, different story. Yeah, I guess that's like a fast, pretty fast. It, it has to but. be pretty quick because I, I didn't do advances. Okay. And but you know I did T style for example. Yeah. And yeah. I would go through two drafts and then the editor would take it and then maybe send it back to me and then maybe I'd rewrite it or maybe she'd just okay. rewrite it and it would basically be the same. Yeah. As what I wanted. I I I've. I've been talk I've talked to a couple different people kind of about this this kind of phenomenon I guess you could say of major publications having movie critics and architecture critics and book critics um, but uh, graphic design there's never kind of a dedicated person do you have any thoughts on that Yeah there's no reason for it Okay that's kind of what I thought you were going to say I I was in the things that I did for those publications and I'm not doing them now, in part because of my health, and in part because it just got to be too much. I was trying to do too much and juggle too many oh, balls. Yeah. But um, the, the the graphic design is part of some other things. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, like yeah, advertising yeah. is its own industry. Graphic right. design is a support or service industry. Even right. the best graphic designers. Are serving something. Yeah. I mean, we we have a program here on entrepreneurship, so they're supposed to be serving themselves, but the product still has to have an audience. So they're serving something right. in that audience. An architecture critic is necessary because architecture is the foundation of culture. Right. Uh, so when I got when I did my book review column, visuals, it was mostly graphic design books, but yeah. it was other books that addressed visual culture. And I don't think of myself as a graphic design historian or a graphic design critic. I just think of myself as a writer about visual things. Okay. So um, when you are writing about, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to exactly phrase this. When, when you are writing about something uh, for, let's say, like a general kind of audience versus something where you're kind of writing for other designers and maybe that's not even a maybe there isn't even a separation there but how much do you think about like education and because you had mentioned you wanting to make people aware that there were people doing this stuff I don't think that there's a difference in audience ultimately okay I mean there are certain things that you can get away with in print that you can't get away with in the times or wired or elsewhere and they need some explanation but that explanation could be parenthetical or it can be a separate sentence or it okay. could be a little introduction. I don't write one way for one group and another way for another group. Only some words may change. Right. And that has more to do with the editor letting those words through than... Oh, I see. You know, so yeah. there, there's a filter to, to all of this. It's, you know, I'm writing a piece now which will be an introduction for a book on postmodernism. Okay. And my belief, frankly, is there was no such thing as postmodernism. 
Okay. That modernism was infused with postmodernism from the very beginning. I'm trying to figure out how to make that work. Okay. And at the same time show that there was a distinction in style. So yeah. I, ha I figure it out while I'm writing it. Okay, that was going to be my next question is, do you, do you start a piece kind of knowing a thesis or where you want to go, or is it you have this kind of loose kernel of an idea... I have a loose kernel of an idea. That's why I like doing the daily blog so much. Yeah. Because when I start, I often start with a picture. Yeah. And then I write to the picture. And so sometimes I can write something that's basically just a long caption, or I can write an article. I mean, I did something yesterday on uh, TATs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's from a book that I should have reviewed... But instead, the book prompted something in me that was a recollection oh, yeah. of, of something that happened when I was a kid. And so I wrote about the test and about how someone my age at that time was given these very provocative right. pictures. Right. And also there was an irony because I found as I was writing it, I googled TATs and I found the, picture, the exact picture and it was on a Pakistani oh, uh, yeah. website for civil servants. Huh. So w w what is all this? What does it all mean? Yeah. Ultimately, what I, I didn't want to write a long treatise. So I wrote a recollection, somewhat anecdotal, and basically a kind of, woe is me, I got stuck with a life based on the results of this test. Right. And I did it all in 500 words. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, just? I just have a couple more questions to to wrap it up. Um, you've been so prolific, kind of in your own writing and uh, kind of academia. Um, but I think something that isn't talked about as much when people talk about kind of your body of work is the platforms you've created to kind of encourage other designers to write and kind of dialogue I'm thinking of like the decrypt program and even things like looking closer and things like that it's just like what value do you see in a kind of rich discourse around this stuff for the profession <laughs> sometimes it's just getting a bunch of nerds together and, and talking about something that nobody's going to fall asleep during I mean I gave a talk last week to uh, our Type is Language program, okay. which I co-founded with Angela Rikers, who was an art director who came to our Decrypt program and graduated from that. Okay. And I've always liked her writing a lot, and I like her, and got her to do this program. This is the third year, fourth year. And uh, when I... No, actually, it, wasn't, it was a different program last week. There's another program called... Uh, visual narrative okay which I had nothing to do with um, Nathan Fox is the chair okay. and I said to the people there we're going to talk about objects and we're going to talk about stories and you probably are going to be the only people that are going to be interested in this thing <laughs> because you're yeah. both you're interested in both things and even in the type program we can talk like type nerds because we're in a group if we right. were to go out to a bar and talk about this, 
right. nobody would come near us. Yeah. But that's true about anything. My, my second wife was a social worker. I hated talking to her friends who were all uh -huh. philosophy yeah. majors yeah. at the new school. I mean, I didn't give a rat's ass about Heidegger or Kant. Yeah. Uh, and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, so it, it comes down to group group participation. Yeah. If you're into something, you you you're into it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The plumber I had this weekend was really into sealing up a leak I had, and so he was into wax. Right. I I mean I I just talked to Alexandra Lang, and and she was talking about how she feels like her writing is it, it comes from and criticism in general comes from a place of of a deep love of the thing that you're writing about. Um, and I think that's kind of like exactly what... Well, I love the things I'm writing about, but I also love playing with the things that I'm writing about. Yeah. And I've got some things coming up on the Daily Heller that, you know, I found that could make stories. And if I had the energy, I would make bigger stories out of them. Yeah. You know, you'll be talking to Jessica Helfand. She did a whole book on scrapbooking. Right, right. When she was doing that, I was not that interested in scrapbooking. Uh, when she finished it, I was much more interested in what she was finding because she was finding things that I'm finding in different places. Right. And just the other day, I came across this very weird scrapbook that I've written about for next week or the week after. Okay. Uh, where you start wondering what's in the mind of the person that's been yeah. putting this together. Yeah. And there's a kind of art to it, you know, if you want to go this far or there's a kind of strange design process going here yeah I mean these are all things that are interesting to think about but am I going to go out and research it and find real answers no right <laughs> right do you, um what do you see what do you see as kind of like 2016 uh kind of graphic design culture we can even go bigger to like visual culture are issues that kind of need to be discussed Well, need to be discussed is a very tricky question because what I felt needed to be discussed in the 1980s and 90s that centered around the computer and typography yeah, yeah, yeah. and the, this shift in layout ideas, this so-called transition from modern to postmodern that was something that really needed to be talked about because it was a generational Yeah, that's what I was thinking of kind of asking that question was there is no generational issue now the generate okay. i mean it's the same in so much of what we do it's the same in fashion it's the same in any kind of pop culture they all kind of blend together and you turn on the radio on sunday and you get jonathan schwartz who used to be a progressive rock disc jockey yeah. doing um frank sinatra for most of the day right or you in fact, I just wrote this thing that said modernism versus postmodernism is kind of like uh, Catholicism versus Protestantism, or maybe it's just Sinatra versus the Beatles. Right. Huh. You know, it, it, yeah. it takes on importance if you give it importance. I try, in some cases, to give things importance, like Ladislav Sutnar, who I've been yeah. writing about yeah, yeah, for yeah. a while. He got kind of passed over for various reasons that I've written yeah. about. And I feel he's important and should be known. How, okay. how known should he be? It's, you know, somebody better than me could write a great biography that makes that's equal to this Bobby Kennedy yeah. biography I'm reading now. 
so do you do you see most of your work now just to kind of to wrap it up a little bit do you see most of your work now is kind of finding these things historically or current that you feel just deserve to be remembered is that kind of because that comes back to like how you start us kind of just following your your interests yeah i mean i still just follow my interests but i'm super aware that i have a daily thing that i have to do so the things that i might write about might not be things that are really of overwhelming interest to anyone i mean i it's just i can probably make up a little story about them I think right now there are those things that I feel the profession should know and that people should know about uh, that I will spend time on. And then there are those things that are just there for my amusement and maybe they'll amuse somebody else. But my my, uh, passion for it, my um, zeal for it, has changed over the years. I mean, it's still, I'm still enjoying it. I'm still, yeah. I still think it's necessary. But I, I for one, have come to a point where I'd like to write it differently, and I'd like to write things uh, that are different. Okay, Dif- different than like what you've written before, or different than what how I write now okay I mean there's Rick Pointer has been writing about photography for the last two years I don't think he writes much about graphic design at all except maybe in print and he made a conscious decision to go from one thing to another okay yeah my wife Louise Feely she made a conscious decision from going from a publishing art director to a food art director oh I see yeah and I made a conscious decision to be all over the place. Okay. And now it's getting time where I need to focus in on something. And I'm not sure exactly what that focus is going to be, so I still do what I yeah. am comfortable doing. What's uncomfortable is finding that true niche that may last 5, 10, 15 right. years, or right. however many years I have left. And do you, I mean, I think this is like a great way to, to, to even wrap this up. Do you think, like, do you even want to find, s- s- after a life of all over the place, do you really, do you want to focus in on something I don't and know. kind of go deep in it? I don't know. I mean, uh, there are times when I say, I wish I had become a filmmaker or a film writer mm-hmm. or a TV writer, particularly now in this renaissance of TV. Yeah. Uh, which m- would mean I was an entertainer of sorts. Uh, but I didn't do it when I had the chance, and I'm not going to do it now. Yeah. Um, when I came back from Barcelona, I was all hyped up to do more about the Spanish Civil War because the styles that came out of the Spanish Civil War graphically were used by both the right and the left. And it's interesting to see that clash of graphics. Yeah. But I couldn't really get much further than uh, surface thesis. Right. So the the question's a good one, and the honest answer is I don't know. Yeah. Because usually I kind of wait for something to hit me in the face, right. and then I go out and I track it down. So like, there's a bear on my property in the in 
upstate Connecticut. Oh wow! And he, he comes at he he makes these rounds, and he takes the bird feeder off the oh, yeah. hook. And the next time he takes the bird feeder off the hook, I'm going to do something drastic. <laughs> that's because he's slapping me in the face. Right. I don't right. know what it is, but I know I'm going to yeah. do something. I love that. Um, let's let's end with. Um, do you? This is this is a simple one. Do you write every day, and do you write about something specific every day? Yes. I uh, I either have a piece that I'm writing, or I'll do the blog. Okay. Um, or, although it's less frequent now than it used to be, I'll try to come up with ideas for projects. Okay. And you know there are things that I can do fairly simply so it doesn't even feel like I'm doing them which means the accomplishment factor right. always has to increase yeah. exponentially yeah because I've got to accomplish at least one thing a day yeah and to do that you know if if I know I'm going to have you coming at three o'clock it means I can't go to the gym at seven o'clock because okay. I've got to finish something by ten o'clock oh I see yeah so Everything gets compartmentalized, and what ultimately happens is I'll come in at 7 o'clock, I'll start doing something that comes through the mail, like I had to make some corrections on a manuscript of a book of mine. So that got in the way of doing what I had to do, what I had planned yeah. to do, and it just kind of yeah. follows that course. That seems like it's, it's not hindering your productivity at all. Well, it depends <laughs> on what you... What you, uh, your goal is, and what my goal right. is, and my goal has always been more than my ability to handle it. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I know what so you mean there. It's, uh, you know, you wish for something. I mean, I I always wished that people would respect me for some reason, and once started people started respecting me, that was nice. But then they started asking me to do stuff, and then in order to do stuff. In order to stay respected, I had to do stuff. Right. And now, you know, I dread it when in the cover line it says, keynote at so-and-so. Yeah. Or, you know, want you to illustrate, write yeah. intro yeah. for such yeah. and such. Uh, I'd feel bereft if I didn't get them, but I also feel pressured when yeah. I do. Well, I appreciate you taking the time for this. It, was, it really was an honor to talk to you. I thought well, this was thank great you. and really helpful. You do good interview. Oh, thank you. This episode was recorded on July 12th, 2016 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>